Hey there, video game fans. I'm Ben Bertoli. And I'm Push Dustin. And this is Memory Card. So, Ben, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, we talk about a lot of different things in this uh, intro part, but one thing that we haven't really talked about, and that's something that's really near and dear to my heart, is the um, MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, that, that has <laughs> never come up. You're right. So I wanted to ask you, like, do you have a favorite superhero from, that, from the MCU? Oh, absolutely. Um, I would say Spider-Man is my number one. Mm. And then followed decently closely by the Hulk. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, those are my two. That's my, like, dream team up right there. Do you like the original Hulk or the, the new Hulk? Um, I think I like the new Hulk better. Yeah. I definitely, I went to see the, like, 2003 Hulk movie in theaters, like, midnight launch. I was all about that in high school, going to see superhero movies at midnight, you know. Mm-hmm. It was pretty bad, so I'm, I'm cool with the new Hulk. How about you? What's your, what's your favorite uh, superhero from that group? It's hard to say because I, I like the whole like, interconnected universe, and so I, I kind of like everyone because they all have their unique role, but I guess if I had to pick one, it would probably be uh, Spider-Man or maybe Captain America. Okay. The reason I'm, I'm asking you this is because uh, the topic that we're talking about today, um, when I was researching it, I was like, oh, this is kind of like the Avengers of nerdy stuff. <laughs> it's con- it's connecting, connecting everything together. It connects everything together. Like a web, like Spider-Man. It's, it, it's, it's a web and it goes very deep. And I was just really surprised when I was researching this topic, just how little I knew about it. But like also how much I knew about it, because I would know pieces of it, but I never knew they're this connected. That's always fun, though, when you like realize that, you know, a certain developer worked on something. You're like, wait, they they did that game. Yeah. All right. Before we begin, let's say um, podcasters unite. Podcasters unite. Unite. Oh, wait. We're supposed to do it at the same time. Okay. I know. We'll we'll edit it. So we're at the same time. No, we can do this. (laughs) Come on. Ready? Okay. Three. Two, one. Podcasters, Podcasters unite! unite. <laughs> that was better, I think. All right, cue the theme song. The topic that I'm introducing today is kind of like the adventures of video game, and specifically Nintendo. And it's something that hasn't been really that well documented. Um, looking at even Japanese sources, it was very hard to find a lot of information about it. But this was actually a, a huge part of Nintendo's history. What I'm talking about today is Marigold um, Management. Marigold Management was a company that actually Nintendo and um, a company called Recruit had started together. It was actually like uh, investment kind of fun huh. so they they would actually try to get money and then they would use that money to fund a bunch of video games and this all happened in the um late 90s so that's uh, like so, uh uh let's the n64 game boy color era yeah exactly okay rewinding a little bit in the 1990s like you know we had the the playstation come out and nintendo was really in a, in a in trouble as a market leader like, they saw their, their position eroding qu- uh, quicker and quicker. And then we talked about the Virtual Boy uh, in a previous episode, and that was never intended to be a uh, mainline console. 
but like a third uh, pillar, as we mentioned. But like even even with that, like that failed to take off. The N64, um, which was at the time codenamed Reality, was having a lot of issues because they were having issues with the hardware. Right. And um, they were trying to develop games for it as well. And so Sony had like a huge jumpstart on that generation. Nintendo was like starting to freak out because developers were, you know, abandoning uh, Nintendo left and right. So that's when Nintendo and Recruit started this Mario management. Mario management, the name of it is actually derived from the company's mascots for Nintendo and Recruit. Oh, like Mario. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, Mario mm-hmm. and Recruit's ma- mascot, mascot is a seagull. Oh. So it's literally Mario and Seagull put together. Oh, man. I was wondering. I was like, what strange <laughs> Japanese word is this? <laughs> I didn't realize it was Italian plumber bird. Yeah. So in June of 1996, they actually announced that this, uh, they were forming this, um, this company and that Nintendo had owned 40% of it with Recruit owning the majority of it with 60%. This uh, fellow, his name is uh, Tetsuya Kayama. He would be the one that was uh, tasked with actually running this management fund. So previously, he worked at Recruit, and he had a lot of expertise, basically um, he- uh, headhunting. That- that's what they do at Recruit. Is they one of the main things they do at Recruit is look for people and try to fill them into specific roles, right? Right. So they they were thinking like, okay, we'll do this, but we'll do it with video games, and we'll do it um, to create new studios. Tetsukayama and Nintendo, they were really worried at the time because they saw an overall decline of original IPs at the time. Mm. And they were worried about the future of video games because if new IPs weren't being so readily developed, then maybe the industry would um, start to decline. Right, like overall. Overall, right. So was he looking for individual people to start new studios or was he trying to grab like whole entire studios? So mostly, um, he would help people start their own studio. Okay. Margo Management would also, they would do a lot of things. So they would um, they'd help secure funding for a new studio. They would help find people for that studio. They would also um, work with publishers and um, actually try to get the game with copyright management, theoretically even help the product go abroad. The whole idea of this company was that if they were successful, if the game was successful, then Margol management would get some of that profit. Hmm. And then that would um, be returned to the investors. And, you know, then they would fund the next game with that, right? Right. Pay it forward. And Margol management had this kind of like dream-like working condition for creatives, where they were very, very hands-off. Which we're going to see is going to cause a lot of problems. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole idea of this actually started with uh, Tetsuya Kayama and uh, Satoshi uh, Tajiri, who uh, is the father of Pokemon, mm-hmm. and Hiroyuki Sonobe, the creator of uh, Derby Stallion. Oh. Because um, they, they, they were all talking and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, there is a need for this type of company where they act as an agent and, you know, really help up, up and upcoming um, video game developers find the role, uh, especially uh, Satoshi Tajiri, because, you know, he spent uh, six years, I think, making Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of that time was just forming that company 
and negotiating with Nintendo and, and trying to figure out the copyright laws and stuff like that. Right. So, like, Morgul Management, they would take care of all that business stuff and let the creatives just do what they do best, which is, you know, being creative. The whole fund, they first started out um, working on very small titles for uh, the Nintendo Power Service in Japan. The Nintendo Power Service is a download service that was offered in convenience stores uh, in Japan. So people could go and bring blank carts and uh, they would buy these blank carts and then they would bring those blank carts to those uh, stores and then uh, download games. And this was mainly for Super Nintendo and Game Boy, right? Yeah, it originally started out with the Famicom Disk System, but Mm. eventually, yeah, it would go to uh, Super Nintendo and, and Game Boy. So, Margo Management, they did um, a couple of games for that. One of the most notable ones was uh, Oekaki Logic, which was uh, released in 1999 for the Super Famicom. And that's just uh, literally means drawn picture logic. And it was um, their version of uh, Picross. Oh, I was going to say, it sounds like a Picross-type puzzle game. Yeah, it was a very small puzzle game like that. After that, they, um, and during that time, they were also involved with setting up a number of studios. So I'm going to list them and um, let's see how many of them you remember or that you, you actually recognize. There's Pram. Pram. That sounds familiar. Noise. I don't know that one. Umbrella. That one I think I do know. Uh, Saruburune. <laughs> don't think I know that one, at least not by its name. Jam's work. Jam's work. No, I don't think I know that one. Okay. So most of these studios, they're completely non-existent anymore. <laughs> oh, okay. But like they um they kind of made titles that you you definitely know about. Mm. So um let's start off with Umbrella. And that one is I think that's the one that you said you you knew or that you heard of, right? Yeah, I, I recall that one, but I couldn't tell you what they were, you know, attached to. Okay. So that studio worked on Hey You Pikachu, oh. which used, used the Nintendo Voice Recognition Software or the Nintendo VRS for the N64. Umbrella, they started out, they wanted to work on a, uh, on a game using this voice recognition software because at the time it was becoming more and more popular with PC and they, you know, they thought, oh, we could bring this to consoles as well. So Mario Gold Management helped hook them up with Nintendo, got them access to the IP, and then um, that's when they started um, making Hey You Pikachu. I have, a, I have a copy of it right here on my shelf, uh, Japanese version, in, in the box. Yeah. If you look through the instruction manual, I believe it will say Morgul Management. Oh, I should do that. I'm not going to do it now. It might be kind of loud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After that, Umbrella also worked on um, a lot of po- other Pokemon spinoff titles like Pokemon Channel, which is also a really odd game. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pokemon Dash and Pokemon Rumble. Yeah, there's definitely kind of like the weird spinoffs. I thought you were going to say something like uh, Pokemon Puzzle League or Pokemon Puzzle Challenge. I love those ones. Uh, unfortunately, they did not work on those. Well, <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> well, um, despite, you know, the fact that they were, um, they're probably the longest, one of the longest surviving companies mm-hmm. uh, of, of these the company would be completely absorbed by Creatures, Inc. in October 2020. And Creatures, Inc. is, is the so, one that works on, like, Pokemon games as well. Yeah, they manage the IP, I think. Right. Uh, let's talk about uh, one of the other developers, and that's Noise. 
So noise is probably another one that you you might know of, but you you don't realize it's them. Mm-hmm. They worked on Custom Robo. Oh, okay. Which was like their main series. They they did a um, couple of entries. I think like four of yeah. them. Yeah, I mean and that's you know way bigger in Japan because it yeah way more entries in that series came out there. I think I have the Japanese version or one of them. The N64 one? Yeah, for the N64. And then I have the GameCube version that came out, you know, here in the States as well. So, Yep, so the, the first two games um, came out for the N64 only in Japan. And then I think there was a portable version and then a GameCube version. Custom Robo, for those of you who don't know, is, is basically uh, very similar to Pokemon, but with, like, building your own robot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, being able to swap out robot parts. There's actually this really um, neat dice mechanic where you have to, like, throw... Uh, you have to roll at the beginning of the battle, and that, like, determines your location where you spawn. Yeah, it's been a while since I've played it. That mechanic was actually um, suggested by um, Tsunekazu Ishihara, the producer of the Pokemon series. So, a lot of Pokemon involvement <laughs> in yeah. goal management. <laughs> Seems to be an inspiration for everyone. So they started out, um, the team originally saw an ad in a video game magazine from Nintendo when they were recruiting staff for Mario RPG 2, which would eventually become Paper Mario. And when these guys came to Nintendo, uh, Nintendo actually introduced them to Murgle. Mm -hmm. So that's how uh, Noise got founded. So all the members like showed up to help work on Super Mario RPG 2, and they were like, you know what? <laughs> Here, <laughs> guys, start your own studio. We can help. <laughs> Yeah, we can help you, and then we'll pay you. And the game, I think Custom Robo also took a long time in development, but it was one of those games that once it was released, it actually did become a hit, and uh, it became quite popular in Japan. They were looking to release the N64 version in the States, but because Margo Management had troubles setting up their Western division, I, I think that wasn't possible. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty popular. I feel like every time people bring up um, characters that they want in Smash, ray ray three or something whoever mm -hmm. the the main robot is always like a big contender like people are always mm. like yeah we want him yeah one of the other studios that you you definitely know is param that's the people behind doshin the giant oh right i was like why do i know that name <laughs> <laughs> kazutoshi ida uh, we had a whole episode on him mm -hmm. so i won't go too much into details but yeah marigold management helped set him uh set up the, that company oh okay yeah, that was our last episode of the last season. So last episode of season uh, four. Yeah. Check that out. Uh, Kazutoshi Ida said that Margo's um, management's approach to game development was almost too perfect because they were so hands-off. Mm -hmm. Almost like too much like kind of a negative thing. <laughs> yeah. Like give us some direction, please. Yeah. That sound means that we're putting this episode on pause for just a moment so we can briefly explain how you can support Memory Card. If you enjoy our content, you can show your support by leaving positive reviews on your podcasting service of choice. Four or five stars and a few kind words go a long way when it comes to convincing others to give the show a listen, so please do so if you find the time. Spreading the word of Memory Card is very helpful. If you know anyone who's into gaming or history or both, then maybe you should consider sharing Memory Card with them or anyone that you find anywhere. Every season, we strive to reach a wider and wider audience, and you can help.
If you're feeling extra supportive, you can head over to patreon.com memcard. Every single one of our patrons gets access to early and ad-free episodes. Higher tiers include bonus episodes, shoutouts, and more. We certainly hope you'll check it out and consider becoming one of our lovely patrons. Once again, that's patreon.com slash M-E-M-C-A-R-D. And if you think about it, if you become a patron, you'll never have to hear this ad again. (laughs) How sad. (laughs) Thanks for taking the time to hear us out. Let's get back to the show. So Nintendo and Recruit, they were feeling pretty good about their partnership, and they decided to create another company. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) So, like, there's just all these companies just popping up left and right, and, and, you know, Nintendo and Recruit are like, you know what? Let's just start another one. After Nintendo and St. Giga's uh, Stateleview partnership ended, uh, Nintendo was looking at other companies to help connect the Nintendo 64 to the internet. Oh, right. And so Nintendo felt that Recruit could help with this project, so they started a company called Radnet. Oh, nice. I was going to say, so, isn't it called Randnet? <laughs> yeah, Randnet is, um, is actually just Recruit and Nintendo Network put together. Man, they just like smashing words. Yes, I, I think that's what they spent most of their time on, actually. <laughs> what, what's the actual name? Portmanteau, I think is what it's called when you combine two words. Yeah, yes, Portmanteau. So um, a man named Masanori Tanaka would be the president of Radnant. I mean, that, that's something that we'll definitely do an episode on at one point because there's just so much there. But yeah, really ambitious, um, you know, add on for the Nintendo 64 and Mario Management had their hands and fingers in all these pies because um, Doshin the Giant was actually offered as um, Radnant's first game. Right. That's how they also <laughs> come back into the N64 DD. What, what do you think happens next, if you had to guess? So I'm going to say that some of the studios that they have been like signing on start uh, failing, I guess, or, or maybe like, you know, they develop games, but the games never actually like come to market, maybe. OK, so that, that definitely happens. But before we get into that, I, I just want to talk about one more company that they founded. Um, and <laughs> it's uh, called Genzi. Genzi. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what the naming was originally from but this title uh this company would help uh it's kind of more of a brand it would help um bring more adult and mature titles to nintendo platforms and they only ever released one title and that was turok 2 for the japanese market really so uh in in their press release they said that um nintendo had a strong family image and the gemzi brand would help promote games that adults could enjoy as well (laughs) <laughs> I thought you were going to say, the Genzi brand will help ruin that. <laughs> we're going to destroy it. But un- unfortunately, after Torok 2, never heard from again, and I can't find any, any additional information. But did they, did they make Torok 2? I thought that was Acclaim who made that. No, no, no. They, they just helped uh, publish it in Japan. Oh, okay. So yeah, um, like you said, you know, they're, they're involved with all these companies, and a number of the, of the titles that they're working on never come to the market. One of the most notable ones is Echo Delta, and that's a submarine game for the Nintendo 64. Oh, I thought it was a, a sequel to Echo the Dolphin. Ah, uh, kind, of, uh, kind of, no, no. But uh, at that, not, at that point, all. Sega and Nintendo were not uh, best friends. So. And, and Sega is involved in this story, uh, spoiler alert. But um, 
Echo Delta was um, being developed by a studio called Clever Trick. And it was actually shown off and um, playable at Nintendo Space World 2000 event. So it was a mixture of real-time strategy and action where players had to recover a sunken ship using a submarine. Hmm. In 2006, an eBay seller named Tiger Break listed an English version of Echo Delta, a prototype version, and it would sell for over $1,500. Wow. The game has never seen the light of days uh, since then. Huh. Has it been, like, dumped online? I don't think so. So it's, if, you, if you're looking for information about um, obscure N64 games, Murgle Management is, is probably the place to look. <laughs> One of the more interesting ones that I don't even know how far it got into development, and there's actually no studio attached to it, which makes it even more mysterious, and that's called Cat Roots. Have, have you ever heard of this game? Cat Roots? No, I don't think so. It sounds like a nature game where you play as a cat. So it's only been showed off once. And the trailer uh, for the title actually resembles a uh, Tom and Jerry or, you know, Itchy and Scratchy kind of uh, episode where, like, um, the gray mouse is actually beating up a red cat. And it's, it's very comical. And, you know, there's shurikens and, and there's uh, flamethrower. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, like, the mouse just whips out a flamethrower and stuff like that. It was shown off at E3 2000. And Nintendo employees were even confused. And this was supposed to be a game for the Nintendo 64? This was supposed to be uh, for the N64. Okay. IGN, they actually asked Nintendo for more information, but Nintendo of America's response was, oh, we were just told to put it there. <laughs> <laughs> who's, telling, who's calling the shots here? <laughs> and then, like, they asked Miyamoto about it, and Miyamoto, the only thing that he said was that Murgle management was involved with the title. And, and that's it. And because Margol management wasn't actually developers, like there wasn't actually people developers, they were just helping fund other uh, studios. It, it's, it's unknown who, who was actually making this game and how, how far it got into development or anything like that. <laughs> it was totally just a test to see how the audience would react. Yeah. Despite their setbacks with these games, Margol management, they were very optimistic. And um, Tetsukayama, he really wanted to prepare a future where console wars were no longer important. They weren't just involved with Nintendo titles. They were also working on titles that would be um, produced for the PlayStation and for Sega. There was a, an interview with, um, with Noise and a fellow named Hisakazu Hirabayashi. He worked at Morgul Management. And um, he said, you know, the game is changing and developers have to think about the future. Five years from now, I don't think console machines will serve as just game machines like it's been in the past. It'll probably be a home server like the PlayStation 2, or it could be a set-top box that, that Microsoft is working on. If you think that the game will be the same, and it's a war between Sega, Sony, and Nintendo, which game to put out on what console, you'll be dead in the future. Hmm. They, you know, they clarified this is not Nintendo's stance, this is just Margold Management's stance. But they were definitely preparing and thinking about the future of video games and where that market would be. Yeah, that was like surprisingly close to the real thing, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, and there's this thing called Netflix. Y'all better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, put a, put a cover over that time machine. You're not supposed to see that. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, as we mentioned, um, Oracle Management was also involved with the uh, N64DD. And um, they're also producing the voice recognition software, or they had their hands in that. 
but they're also working on another add-on that would be canceled for the Nintendo 64, which was the 64 GB cable. So this was different from the the game pack that would be used in the in the Pokemon Stadium games. This would allow you to use your Game Boy as like a second screen. Oh, is it kind of like what eventually came out for the GameCube? Yeah, it's it's kind of similar to that. Okay. They were working on a um, game for that, but unfortunately it was canceled. But yeah, they envisioned uh, using your your portable device as a second screen, which is kind of similar to what would later happen with the Wii U. Yeah, that's true. I never really thought about that. Yeah. Another one of Murgle Management's ideas was to uh, put the older titles as a downloadable service on the N64, and Nintendo would revisit the idea with a virtual console. So they really were ahead of their time in a lot of ways, huh? They were really ahead of their time. It really pioneers. <laughs> it's just some of it, you have an idea, but it's just not something you can pull off well with the current technology. But it, it sounds like they, they kind of ran with those ideas the further down the line. Like, I, I'm not saying like they deserve all the credit or anything like that. But I think like they're definitely visionaries and definitely people who could see in the future and, and or trying to push the industry towards that. Yeah. But um, unfortunately, with... Um, the 64DD and Radnet, those days were numbered. It only lasted, I think, like a, uh, about a year. Eventually, Tetsuya Kayama would leave Marigold um, Management, and um, he would actually go on to work with uh, Sega as their chief operating officer. Huh. And one of the first announcements that he made as uh, Sega, Sega's COO was that the Dreamcast would be Sega's last system, and that Sega would transition to making software. Wow. So this, this is like really, you know, his idea with uh, Murgle Management, thinking that games shouldn't be tied to a system. I don't, like, I don't, know, I don't know if he pushed Sega along with that, but he was definitely the right person to lead that, that change within Sega. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a good call. As much as I love the Dreamcast, uh, yeah. Sega going third party really helped them, you know, expand. Uh, their whole library out to you know more players so and the dreamcast was not doing well at all and they were losing a lot of money if, if they kept investing in new consoles and stuff like that sega would have been out of business he also tried to bring more of um, his games online with sega the sega games that were going to these other consoles now yeah he wanted to include more online functionality and stuff like that okay uh in 2003 uh he would actually step away from sega and then basically leave the video game industry so do we know where he is now uh he, he still works as like a producer um he's d apparently popped up in one movie credit i'm not sure what movie he served as like a producer or consulting for that mm. most of the people um involved with Oregon management there's only seven people maybe 10 people who actually worked at the Oregon management you know they moved on a lot of them moved to um different companies or or just left the video games industry it's been very hard to find information about these people i can imagine what year did it officially shut down so marigold management also shut down in 2003 oh okay so it really wasn't around for that long no despite its like connections and impact on the gaming environment as a whole one of the other big titles that we didn't really talk about was um, Cubivore, uh, Survival of the Fittest. Oh, that's like one of the rarest GameCube games, at least in North America. Yeah. So that game also originally started out for the N64DD, but because of development time and, and 
spiraling game design, I'm sure it <laughs> eventually came out for the GameCube. But I remember um, I have that I have this game and um, this is actually kind of what inspired me to like look into this. Oh, OK. Because um, Saru uh, Brunei, I remember like looking at the disc and seeing that company name and being like, what else have they worked on? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. You see a game that you like enjoy and a developer that you've never really heard of outside and of that game and usually sends you down a rabbit hole. Yeah. And it, I mean, they basically only worked on that title. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they they worked on the um, Jungle Park. So the person who who founded um Saru uh Brunei was actually this person named Gento Matsumoto and he used to work at Nintendo. Hmm. So yeah, um that's the basic history of um Morgul management. It's definitely way more there than I was anticipating. Even after you told me that it was going to be connected to a bunch of like different things. I'm still impressed with how much they uh, managed to touch on in that short amount of time. Kind of, kind of like the adventures, the lackluster, nerdy adventures of N64, <laughs> uh, obscure history. That's right. They're like, hey, you Pikachu, Cubivore, assemble. <laughs> Doshin. Doshin. Smash. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be amazing. I kind of want to see that now. All these like super obscure Nintendo like IPs. <laughs> mm-hmm. We got Custom Robo uh, being the Iron Man. Oh man, might have to make a uh, really cool like header image for the the save file on this one. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. Our intro and outro music was crafted by talented chiptune composer Jamatar. You can find more of his bangin' beats by searching Jamatar, that's J-A-M-A-T-A-R, on Spotify or visiting jamatar.com. If you have any feedback on the podcast or would like to recommend a topic, feel free to reach out to us via Twitter, at MemCardShow. Or you can visit our website, MemoryCardShow.com. If you'd like to follow Ben and I, we can be found at Super Bentendo and at Push Dustin, respectively. Have you considered supporting Memory Card on Patreon? If not, we hope you will. Currently, we're supported by quite a few awesome people, all of which get access to early ad-free episodes. This includes Jackson Bertoli, Taylor Bias, Cody Sam, Michael Strickland, Courtney Cotton, Harrison, Tyler Davis, Jorge Bajija, Manuel Vitella, Ray Schneider, Nick Callis, Shala, and Haitani. All of our Patreon info can be found on the support section of our website or on patreon.com slash memcard. We'll be back really soon with some more gaming history goodness, so be sure to subscribe and leave a review if you've enjoyed the show. We'll see you soon.